two chapters away from finishing the book of Acts. We're right there in Paul on trial and in prison. And uh, this week is Acts 27. Next week, uh, we will finish with Acts 28. And so today, you're going to see something not in the heart of the earth, but in the heart of the sea. And I hope you see from this sermon as, as we go through it that it's maybe preparatory for some of you. This may not, you, you may be in a season of life where it's wonderful right now. Praise the Lord. Or you may be heading into a season or in the midst of a season that it's, it is just dark and you wonder if you're ever coming out of it. And so it may be preparatory for you. It may be uh, immediate for others. <clears throat> the outline, ministry on the way, uh, is on course as God intended, in storms as we see what God allowed, and overboard but safe as God promised. And we're going to do application along the way and see some big truths about our Heavenly Father at the end. And so we begin with on course to Rome as God intended. Ever since Paul was knocked off his horse, he had been on course with God as God intended. He had been a faithful follower. He'd been doing what God had told him to do. And so in verse 1, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some of the other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Why Italy? Because it, Paul was headed to Rome, and Rome was kind of the magnet of the earth at that time. And much like New York or London today, it's the center of the world. And so if you can get the gospel there, it would go out to the far ends of the earth. <clears throat> you have a centurion there named Julius. He's of the Augustan cohort. And so he's like special forces stationed in Syria, literally. And embarking in a ship of the Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. This was Paul's friend. Uh, if you were to go back in Acts 19, it's not up there, but Acts 19:29, he was beat up in Ephesus following Paul. In 24, he traveled with Paul. If this is the same Aristarchus in Colossians 4, he was Paul's fellow prisoner. So he's, this is where we find him. And in Philippians 1, or not Philippians, Philemon 1, 24, he's called Paul's fellow worker. This is a good friend. The next day we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends to be cared for. Notice Paul went to his friends not as a teacher, but one who needed care. And that brings me just three verses into this. When you are on course with God, we need to be surrounded with good friends. The point, friendship is necessary. And you may be thinking Lone Ranger and Tonto, Batman and Robin, but I'm thinking of more David and Jonathan. And I have a few points about friendship. Number one, friendship is not an option. Genesis 2.18, it is not good for man to be alone. Friendship is not an option. Number two, friends share a common vision. If you were to walk through the story of David and Jonathan, uh, Jonathan was as sold out to God as David was. And friendship is knit together in love. And men, it's knit together in masculine love. You see this in 1 Samuel 18.1, that David, it said David loved Jonathan. They loved one another. And friendship is bound together by a humble commitment. Uh, the idea here is when you see David and Jonathan, Jonathan was the next in line. Jonathan gave him his robes. He said, you're God's man. And he humbly stepped aside. 
friendship is proved by bold loyalty. Jonathan went to his father. He stood up against Saul and defended David. And friendship is vital during trials. That Paul is going to be in a trial, he needs friends. Jonathan was a friend to David during his trials. Ladies and gentlemen, beloved, we will not make it through life without friends during the trials. And friendship is strengthened in Godward encouragement. Later on, David comes back and he encourages Jonathan. Uh, That's from the life of David and Jonathan, but the Proverbs tell us about friendship as well. David's son Solomon would write about friendship, that a true friend loves you. Uh, A true friend sticks by you. There's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. A true friend tells you the truth. Uh, The kisses of the enemy are sweet on the lips, but the friend rebukes you. They will tell you the truth. Many people come up and sometimes, no, I won't say many. Sometimes people come up and they have a complaint and and I, I listen to all of them. But more often than not, it's a complaint because we're not doing things the way somebody would want to. But when a friend comes up to me and says, hey, you really need to think about this. I, I understand that they're coming at it from a different angle. They're not coming at it from selfishness or anything like that. They want to see a greater good. And a friend spurs you on. As iron sharpens iron, so one sharpens another. And finally, a friend operates on your schedule of need. It is Friendship is inconvenient. I had the word always here, but I I scratched it out and took it out of the slide because it's not always true because friends will fail you. Friends will fail you. But one thing is absolutely sure. We need friends. You're not going to make it through life. And here's, gentlemen, let me just encourage you. Your wife, I know it sounds so good, but it's so wrong. Your wife is not your best friend. As it's defined what best friend is. Your wife is your good friend. Your wife is there. She's your lover. She's your confidant. She's your intimate partner. She is not your best friend. That has only come around. If you, if you disagree, go read some good articles on it. That's only come around in the last 10 or so years. Uh, but best friends used to be your running buddies. Who are you hanging? Who are you doing life with? And so men, let me encourage you. Yes, your wife is absolutely important. Don't hear, don't, don't walk away. Don't come up after the sermon. Well, no, my wife is. I hear you. Your wife is very important. But you need male friends in your life. Women, you need female friends in your life. Who are your friends? Who are your friends? Right? You don't need many. The, the, the Proverbs say the rich man has many friends. But that's a negative use of it because people surround the rich because they're not wanting to be a friend of the rich. They're wanting to get from the rich. In 1824, it says a many, man with many companions comes to run, but there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. So it's not about quantity. It's about quality. But who's your friend? Who could you call on in the middle of the night and you know they're going to be there? Who could you call on and you, they, they say, I'm in Denver. I need you to come right now. And you go. Who are your friends? Paul had Aristarchus. Paul had Luke. Who are your friends? Who are your friends? And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus. A lee is just a part of the island where you go to miss the wind. I'm learning all this nautical stuff in Acts 27. And so we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, in Lycia, 
There the centurion, that's Julius, found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy. And so this one from Adramidium was a smaller ship, and it got them to where they were going. And now they're going a longer distance, and here they get on a big grain ship. And so he put us on board in, in verse 6, and we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete of Salmon. <coughs> Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lassio. Uh, Fair Havens, if you read the commentaries on this, uh, is, a, is a place where you don't, you don't stay there long. Um, I, I think of when we're driving from Colorado to Oklahoma or Texas on I-70, there's this place in Kansas called the Oasis, and, and it's nice, but you don't stay there. You, you go and you pick up some gas or some food, and you just, you just keep moving on through, through Kansas. Sorry, honey. <laughs> and since much time had passed, verse 9, and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast, notice Luke's language here, was already over. Because the fast is already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. And Paul knew this because this isn't Paul's first rodeo. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-five, it says this, <clears throat> Three times I was beaten with rods. rods, once I was stoned, Three times I was shipwrecked. Paul had been shipwrecked before this. A night and day he was adrift at sea. Maybe he's referring to this chapter in that verse. But three times, and so he understands, if we head out now, it's not good. Why? Because the fast was over. Yom Kippur. It's in late September, early October. It was a celebration of the Jews, the Day of Atonement. And, and so he, he's saying, because this has already passed from... From November through March, it is not good to travel. And Paul's giving them a warning. I remember when I was coaching this, this fall, it was literally late September or early October, I don't remember, but my assistant coach is Jewish. And he said, hey, I'm not going to be at the game on, on Friday. And I said, and I, I recognized, hey, no problem. And he under, we both understood why, because he wanted to celebrate Yom Kippur. And so uh, that date is still there, and it still happens every year for the Jewish people. And so Paul's saying, we don't want to travel now because from November to March, it's not going to be good. But you'll notice something about Paul. He gives them advice, and look what happens in verse 11. But the centurion, this is still Julius, the one that liked Paul, the one that let him go to his friends, paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than what Paul had said. And so people may like you, people may think you're wise, but they may not take your advice all the time. And we've got to learn to, to live with that. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter, there, there they are in Fair Havens. It's not suitable to stay there a long time. The majority decided to put out to the sea from there on the chance that somehow we could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. I mean, who wouldn't want to be in Phoenix during the winter? Even then, it was a place of warmth. Up here, I have a map to show you just so you get a picture of where Paul is going here. And you see him going up and around uh, Cyprus. There's that lee, and then they land, and then they go to Nidus, and then they come down the lee of Crete, and there's Fair Havens, and they're just going to try to get to Phoenix. They're just going a little route. And so because they're just going a little distance, they think they're going to make it. They don't listen to Paul. 
and they follow through with their plans. And so now we find ourselves in storms at sea as God allowed. And I want to show you something about why I put as God allowed. If you want to turn to Job 37, you can go there. You can look at it up here. But listen to these words. From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. He, that is God, loads the thick clouds with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the, of the habitable world. Here's the key. Whether for correction or for his land or for love. Think about this. This is Job. This is in the Holy Scriptures. Weather comes from God to us for correction, for the land, or for love. He causes it to happen. Verse 14, hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. And so we're going to see a storm here, but that storm just didn't come just because. God allowed it. I would say that that rock that's twice the size of the Empire State Building didn't just fall down just because. Whether it's for correction, for the land, or for love, God caused it to happen. If you wanted to do some more work on weather and God's sovereignty, read Psalm 29. But when it comes to storms, how we react to them is vital. We either worship or we curse. And so in verse 13, when the south wind blew gently, you, you, you know those winds. It, it's the winds in the summer. It just feels good. You're sitting out on the patio. It's blowing in gently. And so supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. No big deal. Everything looks fine. The birds are chirping. It's a nice warm night. But soon. A tempestuous wind called the Northeaster. They even named their hurricanes back then, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Pay attention to that word, driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing they would run aground... <coughs> On the Syrtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. And when I was reading this this week, it reminded me of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, but we'll read the context. He gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. He gave those to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, the building up of the body of Christ. And here's why. Here's why. Until we attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And here is the key verse. So that we may no longer be children. And I think Paul's thinking of this language here. Tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. I think Paul was reflecting back on this trip when he wrote, that text. <clears throat> and here, this lovely day, verse 18, becomes violent. 
since we were violently storm-tossed, or if you have an NIV, it was pounded. They began the next day to jettison the cargo. And so they start throwing over all that's that not needed to keep that ship afloat. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle or rigging, and they threw it overboard with their own hands. <coughs> now watch this in verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all of our hope of being saving, saved was at last abandoned. Whoa. They had come to the end. Think about those men in the bottom of the earth going, there's no way. No way. And so I would say to the unbeliever, you will never fully trust the Lord spiritually until you are where these men are physically. They are without hope. They are hungry. And they don't know what to do. And I'd say this to the believer. There are times, and this isn't a misprint. Travis wanted to make sure I didn't uh, write this wrong. It is in the storm that the world sees, and this is what the point is, whose we are and what we're made of. What do you mean, Judge? Well, let's look at the next verse. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. Now, some think this is a divine I told you so. I, I don't know. I think he's just building up credibility. Not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet, verse 22, I urge you to take heart. What? Why is Paul so confident? For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Why would he be so confident? Verse 23, For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Did you catch that? There stood beside me an angel, and the emphasis is not on the angel, the emphasis is on God. The God to whom I belong, I am God's possession and I am God's servant, whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. God was going to save all, you'll see, 276 men because of one man. And this is not uncommon in the Bible. In Genesis 18, Abraham was praying to God, and he said, are you going to destroy the system? city if there's 50 righteous people? He said, I won't destroy the city if there's 50. And so God is willing to save a bunch of people physically because of one of his own. And what, what Paul spoke of here, what it spoke about in Genesis 18, what's spoken about here in Acts, this isn't uncommon. Look at Titus 2, 13 and 14, that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, that to redeem means to purchase back, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. You and I are not our own. We were bought with a price. We are owned by Jesus. And we are zealous for good works. Number one, I just want to let you know I'm glad God owns me. I am glad he owns me. And I'm glad to serve him. 
The world spends its entire life wanting to be free. Nobody's going to own me. But for the believer, there's freedom in being owned by the one who made you. And so Paul goes on. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God. Here's his exhortation based upon his biblical foundation. Take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on the island. I love that. We must run aground on some island. This isn't going to be easy. I love Paul's. I wish uh, our friends in the Health and Wealth Church would read this chapter and read it closely. He said it's not going to be easy. In fact, the ship is going to be destroyed. But Paul has this great confidence. Where did he get it? In 1921, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Paul knew what, he was, what his mission was. In Acts 23, 11, he gets confirmation from Jesus himself. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. It's almost the exact same language that he's speaking to this men on the ship. Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul had been made a promise. And so he now says, take courage. The one who had been given a promise that needed to be comforted now gives the promises and he comforts those around him. And when the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, there's that language again about midnight. Now watch this. Any of you in here, sailors, you have boats? I I believe some of you have boats. Uh, This is the nautical people. The sailors suspected that they were nearing land. And so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A fathom is about a wingspan, 1.85 meters. And so you had 20 of those. And I think these are ropes that they just go down and they're, they're measuring out, knot by knot. And a little further, they took a sounding, sounding again and found 15 fathoms. It's getting shallow. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for the day to come. Who were they praying to? Now, in many a sermon right here, um, and we'll look at this in just a minute, pastors like to look at numbers sometimes and, and, and make way too much of it. Oh, the four anchors probably are the way, the four people, the way people try to save themselves. No, no, they're just four anchors. It's just, it's Luke, who's a historian and a good detailed writer, just tells you there's four anchors. It's not four different ways to try to save yourself. But watch this. As the sailors, these are are the men, you've seen the movies where the, the, the men who were in charge of the ship, it's like an honor. If the ship is going down, you go down with the ship. Not these guys. They were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea. This little lifeboat under the pretense, oh, we're just uh, laying out anchors from the bow. The sailors are wanting to get off the ship. They don't, they, this is how bad this is. They don't even want to be there. So Paul says to the centurion and the soldiers, now I don't know if any of you are military, but this is army versus navy right here. The sailors want to get off the ship. So Paul says to the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. 
in verse 32. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. A little bit aggressive there. Probably didn't need to do that. But they responded to Paul's call. But did you notice this? Paul's been made a promise. If we go back a little bit, he's been made a promise. Not one person is going to die. It's a done deal. Yet he still appeals to the will of man. Did you catch that? It's a promise that has been made. For he knew that he knew Men, you should have listened to me. He says, for this very night stood before me. Do not be afraid. You must stand before Caesar. God has granted. It's a done deal. God has granted you all and those who sail with you. It's a done deal. But still Paul appeals. Paul was not an ivory tower theologian who understood God's sovereignty. He understood it. He understood the saving promise, but he still made the appeal to people. This was real time. And this should comfort you and I when it comes to evangelism. God knows and we still cry out, repent in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you see Paul speak three times on this trip. The first one, he's to give courage. Take heart. I've been given a promise. The second is commitment. Stay put. Don't get off the ship. I guarantee you this is the way it's going to happen. And now Paul appeals to common sense. He's going to tell them to eat. Verse 33, as the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, this is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food and have taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from your head of any of you, on the head of any of you. And so here's Paul, the one who says, take courage. I know the God who owns me and the God who I'm going to worship. He said, we're all going to be safe. He says, stay put. We got to stay on the boat. He says, eat. So often when we're going through trials, when we're going through tribulations, we want to run to this hyper spiritual language. And the thing that helps the most sometimes is just, you need to get some food my friend you know what I want you to do go home and take a nap it's practical advice Paul is not some super spiritual person he is absolutely in tune with God the Father he knows the Lord Jesus Christ he is led by the Spirit but it's not this mysticism he's very practical and when he had said these things he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. This is just dinner. This is not the Lord's Supper. And so here's Paul. They're out and they're, for 14 days. I'm glad they showed those men who they had just a little uh, food left and they were di- dividing it up. This is Paul doing the same thing. You see, what happened in Chile is not, um, what, is not just something that happened in life. It resonates with what happens in Scripture. You can read this and find out about how God works providentially, powerfully to protect His people. We don't know if any of those men from Chile came to know the Lord. I'd love to follow up and find out. We, we don't know. We're not told in this, in this story what happened to these men when they get to the Isle of Malta and on into Rome. We don't know if they came to know the Lord. 
But did you know that 1,700 years later, there would be a great man of God who would be saved on a storm at sea? I'm not kidding. Look at these next few lines. John Wesley, if you are from the Methodist church, if you went to Southern Methodist University, uh, we have small groups because of this. His brother Charles, many of the hymns we sing come from these two men. And so let me tell you about John Wesley. He finally saw how little he knew of Jesus in the middle of the Atlantic on board the Simmons when a storm suddenly broke out. A group of Moravian, these are Germans, Moravian missionaries happened to be having a worship service on deck at the time. They're having a worship service and the thunder is clapping and the lightning's all around them and the Germans are having a good old time praising Jesus. They had been happy to have a worship service at the time. Wesley records, and these are Wesley's words, and Wesley, by the way, is from London, so listen to these words. When the storm became intense, a terrible screaming began among the English. It's what, this is Wesley. He's from London. He's the one that said this, not me. I'm just reading what Wesley said. But the Germans, the Germans looked up and without intermission calmly sang on. My soul magnifies the Lord. You know, they're just sitting there, just singing. Here's Wesley. I asked one of them afterwards. So, so this is, they have their whole worship service while the storm's going on. Then Wesley comes up to one of them after. Were you not afraid, he answered? I thank God, no, I asked. But were not your women and your children afraid? He replied mildly, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. Wesley then knew that something was missing in his life, and he found it in Christ. He found all that he needed to face life and death in Christ alone. And it goes on to say in that article, so when the next 9-11 hits, when the next Paris hits, whatever hits, this is what Ray Ortland says, may we serve others in, a, in every way we can. Amen? We do what we can. But through it all, even right now, may we not yield to the hysteria. May we calmly sing on, because we have in Christ a hope that nothing in this world can destroy. Our serenity will make an everlasting difference to others. It did to John Wesley, it did to those soldiers. And so in 36, they carry on and they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. Luke may have obtained the ship's log afterwards. I don't know where he came up with that number. Uh, there's discussions in the commentaries. If you want to see that, go for it. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. And so they all were fed and now, We've gone to on course as God intended. Paul's following God's course of action. He's in the storms as God has allowed. And now he's over aboard but safe as God had promised. Will they follow through with this action? Will God follow through with what he said? And when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach and on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. And so we get some more nautical language here. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. And at the same time, loosening the ropes, they tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. 
But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow, that is the front of the ship, stuck, and it remained immovable. And the stern was being broke in the surf. So here's the ship heading for the bay, bay, and it gets stuck, and it's breaking apart. And then the soldiers, those army men, not really caring uh, for anyone, planned to kill the prisoners lest they should swim away and escape. Like we discussed last week, they realized if these guys get away, their guilt is on our heads. So they were wanting to kill them. But Julius, the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. I bet you he had learned his lesson to listen to Paul's words. And he ordered those, here's Julius, he ordered those who could swim, those of you who can doggy paddle, freestyle, however you do it, get out there, swim, jump overboard first and make for land. The rest on planks and on pieces of the ship. And notice verse 44. And so it was that all were brought safely to the land. And so let me tell you a few truths about this chapter. Again, the truth of the text is to stay on the line. Our liberal friends, unfortunately, Wesley's uh, vigor and fervor for the Lord has been overshadowed in that mainline denomination today. They, they go below the text. They're liberal, more most of them, I would say 90% of them. Luke they would say Luke added this fanciful text to give drama to the story because the sea voyage motif was often used in ancient literature. They basically write off that God had anything to do with this and that this was real. This was just a tale Paul's telling. But then many people want to go above the text. They want to allegorize. They want to try to make too much out of it. They, they, again, they say the four anchors are the four ways people try to save themselves. But let me give you the four pillars of truth. I mean, it makes for great preaching, but it is terrible, terrible Bible study. And so can I give you three truths from this text that I think we can draw out of this text? And I'll begin with this. We can see something of God's providence that he does move in mysterious ways. That when you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and those that have been walking with the Lord for a long time know this, that life is not easy and coming and being on course as God intended, it's not going to be without its difficulties. God moves in mysterious ways. Let me tell you a story. We sing Amazing Grace by John Newton, who was a sea captain who came to know the Lord. And later in his life, he met a man named William Cooper. It's spelled C-O-W-P-E-R, Cowper. But he met William Cooper. And William Cooper was one of those gentlemen who just never got over a depression. Never. Not in all his life. He was severely depressed, so much so that he had to reside in his house. But he loved the Lord, and he didn't let that uh, depression get to him. He made many, many, many wonderful poems and hymns. And he recalls, Cooper recalls, that Newton would come to him. Here's a guy who was a sailor who had been saved by amazing grace who would come and just minister to him. He wouldn't try to change him. He wouldn't try to uh, just make, make light of things. He recognized this was a deep, deep, deep darkness. But along the way, Newton was able to show Cooper some of the greatness of who God is and and Cooper wrote, God moves in mysterious ways. And I want you to see this entire hymn. It is absolutely wonderful. We've used it here before. But 
Just pay attention to the words. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. That those waves that were knocking that boat apart, those nights and days when there was no sun, God's in control. Deep in unfathomable minds, interesting, of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and he works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge, this is huge. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Don't, don't see Paris. Don't see 9-11. Don't see what's going on in all the world and sit there and go, where's God in all this? Don't do that. That's feeble sense. Judge not the Lord with feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Because he, remember, he, he gives the storms for, for correction, for the land, or for love. His purposes, they'll ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Here's the key. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. There is no God. This, this Wednesday, you, if you think about it, pray for me. I get to visit again through that radio show. And, and I'm sure Paris will be brought up. Lots of things will be brought up. What happened in Colorado Springs will be brought up. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. There is no God. There's no one who's in control of this. This is just humanity run amok. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. God's in absolute control. He was in control in Acts 27. He was in control in 2010 in Chile. He's in control in Paris. He's in control in Colorado Springs. No problem. It's his providence. In fact, if we look at Luke 8, 22 through 25, this is what people might say. One day he, that's Jesus, got in a boat with his disciples and said to them, let us go to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And here's what some will say of our God. Verse 20, 23. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came upon the lake and they were filling the water, filling with water and were in danger. Where's your God? Is he asleep? Verse 24. And they went and woke him. Master, master, are we, we are perishing. Mark says, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased. And there was a calm. Verse 25. He said to them, where's your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled, saying, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. Not only is in God's sovereign control, but there is God's sovereign power. That is the next thing you can see in this chapter. That Number one, he is able to save. And he will certainly save. But if he doesn't save, see, we're not banking on this fact that 
if I if I I'm not going to name it and claim it. Well, it's written in Acts 27. God has to work that way. No, he doesn't. He's in con- sovereign control, but he will ultimately save. And I think of Daniel three. Well, there is men are getting ready to go into <coughs> the furnace. They said he said, bow down and worship and you won't have to go in the furnace. But they said, know this, king, our God is able to save and he will deliver us. But if not, we will not worship. He will ultimately save us because he's that powerful. Here he is providential. Here he is powerful. And I want you to see that that same power God showed Paul in Acts 27 is in our lives as well. Paul saw God's power. Paul was in a fallen world with natural disasters and human forests. Paul was given promises through an intermediary, the angel, and he was a witness to a dying world. And so we can see God's power. We live in the same fallen world with natural disasters and human forces, and we we don't have we aren't given the intermediary of an angel with wings. We're given it with books and pages. But it is the exact same truth that 1 Corinthians 10 says this was written for our instruction and we too are witnesses to a dying world. God is the true actor behind the scenes and Paul acts as his messenger, the messenger of God's promise. God Paul is now the messenger of God. He experienced grace. Take courage. I'll get you to Rome. And now he's passing that on. And I've seen it happen at this church more than once. Families who've experienced pain and turmoil and watched God's providence and power work in their life pass on the promises to others. It is, as Hebrews says, an anchor for the soul. We'll read that and then we'll be finished. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater no one greater by whom to swear. He swore by himself. When God makes a promise, he doesn't say, you know what, I promise you, I swear on Judd's life. Can't do that. Judd's weak. Judd's sinful. Judd's going to die. Not anytime soon. Don't worry. Unless he wants to die. He's in control. So he swears by himself. I swear by myself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abram, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. God made a promise. God kept the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, that is it, God's character cannot change. If he makes a promise, he will keep his promise. He guaranteed it with an oath. And so he's, here's my character, it's enough, but I'm going to go ahead and give you my word as well. So that by two unchangeable things, the character of God and the promises of God, in which it's impossible for God to lie, he who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And here's the key verse. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. When I met my wife, um, she now wears a beautiful engagement ring. Beautiful. But before, she had this, this ring that had an anchor on it. And I always wondered, why the anchor? It's right here. God's promises are an anchor for our soul. And so I'll leave you with this. What, what can you and I go do with God's providence, God's power, and God's promises? Lives of people are saved when they listen to God's promises spoken by God's people. Lives of people are saved. And so Paul is a picture of what happened physically 
when you and I go, especially this Christmas season, now more than ever, people want to know, what does God have to do with all that's going on in the world? He, he could do it anyway. He could just save people. He could just go, saved, done. But he's chosen to work through humans. He's chosen to work through Christians. He's chosen to give us the message. And he says, go, share the gospel with the entire world. Lives are saved when God's people speak God's promises.